Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May almighty and merciful Father, that you would grant us this, that this evening we might open your word and understand it, that you would show us in your word your Christ and the great salvation we have in him, and so strengthen and deepen our faith. And now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, last week, if you remember, we ended the section of Hebrews with a very big and important exhortation. He said we are not to neglect what he calls such a great salvation. But let me tell you that sometimes that is harder than it seems because it, it is a hope in something that we do not yet see. Sometimes that means that we miss how great that hope is and how sure the salvation is. I mean, I mean look at ourselves. Do we seem to the eyes like the brothers of Christ, like those who share in the glory of the sons of God, those who are the heirs of the kingdom of God itself. We're not really right. In fact, when we look at ourselves, we're more likely to see a group of misfits, a ragtag band of outcasts, people all too easily trampled upon by the powerful of this world. And that doesn't really inspire us to persevere in Christ that much, does it? We have to somehow bridge the gap. We have to somehow, whilst we are still here, know about the glories of the great salvation that is to be ours, so that we can hold firmly to the end. And this is a gap that today's passage from Hebrews helps us to bridge. As it first shows us how great our salvation is, and then how sure the great salvation is. So how great is our salvation? He opens here by helping us see that our salvation results in nothing less than restoring man to rule and dominion over the world to come. Forget about those cheesy cards with angels pictured administering the kingdom of God as they play on their harps and sit on the clouds. The world to come is not subjected to angels, but to man. Verse 5, he says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And he proves his point by quoting from the psalm we sung earlier, Psalm 8, that marvels at how the very God who has created the marvels of the heavens cares so very much about man. Verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And what is the big point here? The big point is this. Yes, man for a little while is lower than the angels, but ultimately he has rule and dominion over the whole earth. As verse 8 continues, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. 
Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar because it's exactly the same thing as we heard in our Old Testament reading from Genesis and chapter 1, where we heard that God created man to have dominion over his creation, over the works of his hands. Ruling the world is central to God's purpose in creating man. However, as verse 8 rightly continues, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So what went wrong? Why do we not see it? Well, between Genesis 1 and us today, there stands the specter of Genesis 3. Sin, and with it, mankind's fall from power and dominion to being under power and dominion of someone else, namely the devil and the curse of death. But sin in the fall doesn't mean that God has abandoned this great purpose for man. But what it does mean is this. It means that if God is going to fulfill his creation purpose for man, if he is going to give man dominion over the works of his hands, he will have to save man first. We need first to have that very great salvation of which we are speaking. One way to see it is to look at Jesus. If you look at Jesus, you can see the one who has gone ahead already to become what we are promised to be. Yes, for now we are still lower than the angels and basically nothing is subjected to us. But look at Jesus, who was once like us lower than the angels, but now is above them all as Lord of all. Look at him, verse 9 he says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Jesus now is what we were created to be. Jesus is, on your outline, the perfect man. And do you see, if you consider this Jesus, this Jesus who was lower than the angels but is now crowned with glory, you see the pledge of your own salvation in his footsteps. If you're following the outline, it's point two. What does the fact that Jesus is crowned as a perfect man teach us? And I want to say that our text gives us perhaps five things. It's as if he takes five bright spotlights and shines them at gleaming parts of our great and glorious salvation. The first spotlight he reels in highlights this, that he suffered death for mankind. If you remember back in Genesis, God had warned us so sternly, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But we ate of it. And so since then, man has surely had to die. Now think of this. Jesus, the immortal Son of God, who became man and died. Why? What was he doing? He became man. He became man who must die to die for man. We have to die. So he became us to do it for us. As verse 9 continues, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He suffers by the grace of God for us to save us from the same. Verse 10 puts it like this. For it was fitting that he, 
for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So consider this Jesus, who died for you and his salvation, which is very great. At this point, he reels in another, another powerful spotlight, and this time he trains it upon the fact that he is bringing many sons to glory. We already heard in verse 10 this phrase, bringing many sons to glory, and it is an amazing thing if you can wrap your head around it. This is Jesus, the perfect eternal Son of God, bringing us, adopted sons of God, to glory. And he calls us brothers, his brothers. It does not matter what the world calls you. It doesn't matter whether the world says you are poor or rich or slave or free or man or woman or child or Gentile or Jew or anything. Jesus says this to you. He says, you are my brother and I love you. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who sanctify have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I would tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Do you see this? Jesus is not just our saviour, no. He is also our perfect, powerful, big brother who saves us. The one before whom, as we sung just now, before whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, calls you his brother. How great is this salvation? But salvation is not just a matter of being called his brother, is it? In fact, I heard a harrowing story recently of a lady who loves her younger brother very dearly. She loves him so much that she keeps visiting him where he is now in prison. But ultimately, no matter how much she cares for him, no matter how much she treats him still as her brother, no matter how much she visits him, he is still in prison. And that's the same for us, isn't it? It's wonderful that Jesus calls us his brothers, but we need more than just that. We also need a saviour who will bust us out of our prison and keep us out of prison. And this is the next thing that he wheels in a spotlight to show us. He shows us that Jesus is the one who destroys the devil's power to enslave us. What is this power of which we speak? It was the power he had to bring our sins against us and condemn us to death eternal. It was a power to say to us, Seeking after righteousness is pointless. You're a lost cause already. You're condemned long ago. Death and hell, it's not an if, but a when. The power to enslave us to lives of fear, of death, of lives that ultimately become selfish and greedy and vain. And how does he break us out of that strong power? He does not just die for us, but he dies as us. And this is an important distinction. Yes, it's true he dies for us. His death is in our place for our salvation, but he also dies as us. He becomes us in every way so that when he dies, we die too. And so the power of death is broken from us. But how can he die as us? To die as us, he has to, he has to take upon himself 
What makes us us? Our usness. He has to bring upon himself our human flesh and our human blood. This Jesus, consider him. He is the Son of God with our own flesh and blood upon him. And when he dies, do you see, it is now our flesh and blood that dies right there on the cross. And therefore, us who are flesh and blood, who are set free from the power of death and the devil forever. As the creed puts it, it is for us men and for our salvation that he became man. Or verse 14 puts it this way. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Consider Jesus. He did not become an angel to save angels. He became a man to save mankind. As verse 16 says, it is surely, surely it is not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Consider Jesus. He became us to break the power of the devil over us. How great is his salvation. And just when you thought that you couldn't have any more spotlights, he brings in another one in the fourth place. He shows us that this Jesus has also offered up the perfect sacrifice for our sins. But what is he saying here? He is not just saying that Jesus is the one who died as a sacrifice for our sins. He is saying that Jesus became man to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And I think sometimes we miss the wonder of that. Think about it. If an angel priest came and offered a wonderful sacrifice, who would that sacrifice be for? A sacrifice by an angel would be for angels. And so do you see for Jesus not just to be the perfect sacrifice, but to be the perfect sacrifice offered for us. He has to become one of us. Part of the whole purpose of Christ becoming man is that he can become our priest for us in offering the sacrifice that deals with our sin forever. That's verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Consider Jesus, not just the perfect sacrifice, but the one who offers the perfect sacrifice for us. It's a great salvation. The last of those five spotlights is this. He is also able to help us when tempted. This is a point that Hebrews will deal with a lot more later. So we'll touch it only briefly now. But it is the fact that Jesus, in becoming one of us, in suffering and dying like us, is perfectly able to hear us and help us when we go through the very same things as verse 18 says. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What have we seen so far? I hope we have seen that our salvation is indeed very, very great. And I hope we have also seen that Jesus is not just 
the one who comes to tell us about salvation. He's not just the apostle of our faith, but he is also the one who has achieved for us salvation. He is the high priest, the one to whom we must look to be saved. As chapter 3 and verse 1 puts it, Therefore, holy brothers, who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. His salvation is very great. But let me tell you, knowing how great his salvation is, is one thing. But knowing that it is sure and certain is quite another. The one is useless unless it is sure and certain. And that's the last part of our passage. As he briefly moves from how great salvation is to how sure salvation is. And for this, he is going to give us three strong nails upon which we can hang our confidence and our hope. This is the first nail. Jesus has already proved that he is faithful by his works. Think about it. God sent Jesus to become man, to offer himself up as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of mankind, and he did it even though it meant what we heard of in our gospel, the bitter agony and trial of Gethsemane, the sweat-like blood, the pain and suffering of the cross, he did it. He has already proved himself perfectly faithful. Verse 2. He was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. That is to say, if you trust the law that comes by faithful Moses, you can also trust the gospel that comes by faithful Jesus. And in fact, you can trust Jesus even more than Moses. And this is the second firm nail that you can hang your confidence upon because his glory proves his faithfulness. Think about what we've seen about Jesus so far. Think about the way that Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor far beyond the glory ever given to Moses. And you will see in him God's testimony that this is my faithful son. Trust in him. Yes, Moses was faithful, but, but only as a servant amongst his people. Jesus' faithfulness is way beyond that. His faithfulness of a son who loves and does all that is required for his people. That's verse 3 to 5. You read it with me. It says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify of the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We can surely trust in him. And what's that third and final nail of sure confidence? It is this. It is the knowledge that his faithfulness is for us individually and personally. It is important to know that Jesus is faithful, but it is even more important to know that he is faithful to you and to I. It is important that I know whether I am one of his people who he is bringing to glory. Am I? Are you saved? After all, not everyone will be saved by Christ on the last day. Can you be sure and certain as you hang your hope upon him? Well, that is the third nail. 
It is this. It is that you know you are part of his household, that you know you are one of his brothers who he is bringing to glory if you keep trusting and hoping in him. That's what the last part of verse 6 says. The last part of our passage, he says, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. So long as we keep trusting him, so long as we do not neglect his great salvation, so long as we do not fall away, we can be absolutely certain that every single thing he has promised is certainly and always will be ours. How sure, therefore, this great salvation is. So to conclude, what have we seen and what does it mean? Well, I hope that we have seen today some really, really wonderful things about Christ and salvation. We've seen how he has died our death, how he's counted us brothers and brings us to glory, how he has freed us from the power of the devil, how he has offered us sacrifice for our sins, how he helps us in temptation, and most of all we have seen that we can trust him absolutely and surely for every one of those things, that this salvation is yours, it is mine, it is ours if we hold firm our faith in him. Which means, of course, that the big application from this passage comes straight from the page of the text. Consider this Jesus, and so trust in him. Do you feel discouraged in your faith? Consider Jesus and trust in him. Do you feel tempted to fall away back into the world? Consider again Jesus and trust in him. Do you feel sometimes that the cost of being a Christian is too much? Consider Jesus and trust in him. Hold fast your confidence and boasting in your hope. But how do we consider Jesus? I mean, in practical sense, in practical terms. Well, I think we've made a very good start today, haven't we? We've read God's word. We've considered what it says about Jesus. And so we have been, I hope, strengthened in our great salvation. In fact, every sermon, at least every Christian sermon, should do that. It should help us to consider Jesus. I think if you hear a sermon that doesn't help you to do that, you can complain bitterly afterwards. Another way that we might consider Jesus is what we'll do a little bit later. As we gather around the Lord's table specifically to remember his great death for us, and the salvation it promises. As a big part of the Lord's Supper, consider Jesus and so trust in him. But it's not just something we can do at church, is it? We can do it at home as well. We can read God's word at home. And let me encourage you, if you're someone who has children, there's great fruit in opening the Bible with your children. Just read a little bit and help them to consider Jesus. One other thing, one last thing I'd like to suggest to you is perhaps you might want to take up a very ancient Christian practice. One which you can even do in the shower. That is singing hymns. Learn some of the great hymns of the faith. Learn some of those hymns, which, the words of which echo the very things that Scripture says of Christ and salvation. And keep singing them, learn them, so that so that those truths soak so deeply into your soul that they come to your lips in times of trouble. 
Why don't you take the bulletin home today and make a start on that? But whatever you do, let us be sure that we do keep considering Jesus. That we never let him out of our sight. So that through knowing the greatness of his salvation, we will hold firm to the end. To that wonderful day when the one who calls us brothers will come again. To bring his brothers, you and I, everyone, to, that, to the life of, that world, of the world to come and to the kingdom that knows no end. Shall we pray? Mighty God, we thank you because you are a wonderful, a loving, a merciful and a mighty God. We thank you because you have sent your only Son, Jesus Christ, to become one of us, to bear our flesh, to die our death, to free us from the power of the devil and the bonds of death. We praise you that he has done this, that we can look to him for great and sure foundation, salvation. We pray, Almighty Father, that you would so help us to consider him, that our faith would be firm and fast, that we would endure faithful to the end, and through him enter the life of the world to come. And this, Almighty Father, we ask in his name. Amen. Amen.